0: morning. It is good to be with you this Lord's Day. Uh, as you may have noticed, I'm filling in for Pastor Proctor today, and I hope that I can make a most excellent use of our time together and that I can fill his shoes appropriately, right? We pray for Pastor Proctor that all of the Proctors can rest and recover their strength. Just as an announcement before we begin... I may be exhorting you more often to continue to stretch and to test uh, the gifts that the Lord has given me. So in light of that, uh, I will begin a series on the Beatitudes in the book of Matthew. We will be reading the entire Beatitudes today, but I will only be covering one of them this morning. So for our Old Testament complimentary passage, turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Verses 31 through 34. And in honor of God's word, please stand. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Father's. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write on their, I will write it on their hearts, And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Amen. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Verses 1 through 10. Matthew 5, chapter, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Lord. It has come the time where your word. And only your word is preached. Let your spirit be with me. And minister to the hearts of the church. Forgive me of my sin. And only your word be preached at this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most memorable experiences growing up in Puerto Rico. Is visiting its natural resources. It's visiting the rivers, the beaches, and the rainforests. One of its greatest places to visit is a rainforest on the northeast part of the island. It's called El Junque. It's got mountain peaks that almost scrape the sky. It's loaded with rivers and trails to really get a full experience of the island. I remember one weekend, me and my family had friends visiting. So we decided it was a good idea to take our friends for a tour of El Junque. I was about nine years old. My older brothers were 14 and 16. And when we got there, it was about 5 p.m. after spending the whole day. Right at sundown. My brothers, they both thought it would be a good idea to hike up the highest peak. And my eldest brother... He was charged to lead all of us up the mountain by ourselves without any adult supervision. Great idea. About an hour into the hike, my older brother, he starts to grow restless because it was getting dark. So he decides now that it's not such a good idea. And now he wants to come down. But my other brother, he wanting to reach the top. He thought it was a great idea to pick a fight with my older brother about it. This argument in the middle of the jungle escalated very quickly from the topic of, are we going to go up this mountain now? To a very heated personal fight between them that was so much more than just the hike. See, my eldest brother, he got his pride hurt. He got called out on some things and instead of confessing his shortcomings and showing some humility, he doubled down on his perceived authority. He tried to force in obedience without any real earned respect. My other brother, he doubled down on his pride and he saw an opportunity to shame and humiliate my older brother. See, because he was the cool one. He was always looking to challenge authority. He was always the one that wanted to live on the wild side. So they both went on their own paths. My elder brother, set in his ways, not wanting to change, barking out orders, because he should be followed. He went down the mountain. And he went down thinking that he was the unsung hero. My other brother... Also set in his ways. He decided to reach the top. And he was feeling as cool as ever. While disregarding all sound reasoning. He also thought he was the unsung hero. Long story short. We all ended up lost. All of us. Scared for our lives. In the middle of a dark jungle. And by the grace of God, we were finally rescued by park rangers. Pride. Autonomy. Division. All natural leanings we all know very well. And they often present themselves with these two archetypes. The older brother, prone to cling to tradition a little too hard, who refuses to change... And also the cool, hip, younger brother, a little too trigger-happy, right? Challenging authority at every corner, pushing change a little too hard. And it is also often the case that both of those archetypes speak past each other, falling prey to pride, and ultimately leading to an unreconcilable split How many of us have seen this unfold in our lives? How many of us have been one of these two roles? I would say that this is one of the main reasons we have so many Protestant denominations. Pride has a way of ensnaring us all with an illusion of an unearned greatness at our fingertips. An entitlement of glory and honor While in reality, all we're doing is being insubordinate creatures. It is because of pride, we're always the hero in our heads. While in reality, all we're doing is being loose-tongued sinners who lack self-control. Pride and autonomy are at the very heart of the demise of the individual, at the heart of the household's, The demise of churches, the demise of nations and kingdoms. One of the most difficult things of being a pastor, and I'm speaking as a pastor's kid for the first half of my life, and now as an elder, is getting your people to be of one mind. To get an entire congregation to move as one. To put away their personal pet peeves, their particular way of doing things for the sake of the group and the task at hand. And while putting aside one's particular way of doing things, it sounds like a simple enough thing, right? I'm sure we're all very well aware just how complicated sinners can be. So much so that the Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17 it's precisely about us being one as He is one with the Father. Think about it. Right before the crucifixion, what was pressing on the heart of our King was that we all be one. And that we all be one in the world, not out of it. But how can we? How can we be one? What is it that can unite us? What virtues can we all look to and strive toward so we might build a kingdom that is everlasting? If you think about it, what's at the core of the human experience is a sustainable community. And this is what we're all trying to maintain day by day. If we think about how we order our households, how we disciple our children. It is all with the aim of sustaining and multiplying the family community. This mechanism is the same for the church. This is also the same for the nations. A sustainable kingdom is achieved with unifying Ideals, But the kind of ideals, that matters, because not all of them lead to life. The kind of ideals matter because as a wicked and sinful people, our cares are always born out of sinful appetites. And sinful appetites, they don't share stolen glory with no one. Then who determines the correct ideals? If all we strive for is ourselves. Nations and kingdoms fallen in sin. They seek power and dominion. On behalf of the God of the self. Sinful man thinks he can be autonomous. And so he shakes his fist at God. And we see it in the Tower of Babel. Other nations. They seek to dominate. By way of force. They think if we can yell loud enough through violence and murder, that they can conform a people to obedience. And so sinful man shakes his fist at God and figures like Egypt in the scriptures and the rest of the pagan nations. The Israelites they seek to dominate under the rule of God. Yet their hearts would drift to worship idols with sinful kings and sinful priests. See, the Israelites wanted the prestige of being the chosen people, while ignoring that the promise has always been for the entire world. See, they would often defy the Lord. Seeking shortcuts, compromises, syncretized worship, All with their own agendas of how to do things a little better than what God had said to do. All of it while paying lip service to God. See, but God. God has already set the stage for what he intended to do with his world. He has already defined what redemption he intends to work out in history. And no kingdom of man, no kingdom of sin can ever, ever replicate that. God's mission has always been the establishment of an everlasting kingdom. And we see it in Psalm chapter 2, particularly verse 7. It says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And if that's a little confusing, the Apostle Paul interprets this for us and he applies this verse of the father begetting his son by the event of the resurrection in Acts chapter 13, verse 33, verse eight. Now, going back to the second psalm, verse eight says, ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the earth, the end of the earth, your possession. God's plan is clear. He intends to reconcile the world to Christ. His perfect work on the cross. Brothers and sisters, is so much more than your personal experience with him. See, here in the United States, we're a nation fixated. With the individual aspects of salvation fixated on ourselves while completely missing the point. This verse speaks of the nations being the heritage of Christ. And that Christ earns by his resurrection the ends of the earth as his possession. That's the reward. That's the aim. By virtue of the resurrection. An everlasting kingdom that reaches the ends of the earth. That's big. How is that achieved? Begs the question. See, the nations up to that point. Unto the book of Matthew. The nations, they follow the footsteps of Satan. Thinking that it's power. Force. The trampling of the weak. That this is the way. A kingdom is established forever. And although the Lord does use his power as a means for the conquering of the nations, that was never, never at the heart of what sustains a kingdom. What was it? Loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And loving your neighbor as yourself. To be faithful in the little when only God is watching because that is what is right. Not just in the great battles and the ceremonies of conquering and victory. Matter of fact, it's in the little acts of faithfulness and obedience that our hearts are revealed. It's not when we have power. We can have all the power and might in the world. Yet that is not going to cause us to love God. To love his ways. To love the standards of his law and truth. Not just a mere conformity. See, the kingdom must be built from citizens who are united and driven by holy ideals and motivations. The kingdom must be built from the inside of our hearts all the way out to the ends of the earth. Jeremiah 31. He promises that the Lord will make a new covenant with Israel. One in which the law will be written in the hearts of the people. Creating a virtuous citizen grateful to be under the rule of God. Striving to obey and submit to the Lord. Like a wife submits to her husband. See, because Jeremiah describes how the covenant breaking of Israel is that of an adulterous wife betraying her husband and her house. Yet the Lord will continue to be faithful to his promises of making a bride for himself out of what? All the nations. That all will know the Lord from the family to the neighbor. Not by an external teacher. But by one who will reside within them. That man is not to be ruled by his own autonomy. Or his perceived autonomy. Which is just the belly of his sinful appetites. That he is to be ruled in covenant relationship with God. That his heart of stone... Might be taken out and be given a heart of flesh that loves and desires to submit to the Lord. A heart that understands their covenantal responsibilities in the house. Their covenantal responsibilities as individuals. The covenantal responsibilities as the church. To ultimately send out into the world citizens entirely equipped for every good Work. See, the Old Testament ends with this messianic expectation of victory, of majesty, and dominion. And that's how we come to the Gospel of Matthew at the beginning of the Lord's ministry. And before we step into the Beatitudes within the Sermon on the Mount, to really understand what's going on in Matthew chapter 5, To understand just how central this passage is, we have to take a brief look at our Lord's temptation before His ministry in Matthew chapter 4. As we've seen in the Psalms, or in Psalm chapter 2, clearly, the mission of God is for Christ to inherit the nations. And in Matthew 4, what happens there? Our Lord is offered the nations by Satan. But much like the temptation of the first Adam, Satan only offers a worthless, cheap, fake glory. One that is to be taken by rebellion rather than earned by loving submission and obedience. If you look closely, brothers and sisters, all of the temptations from Satan are within a, if you want it, just take it. You want that? ticket. That's the approach. Does that sound familiar? Much like a child would behave, right? A child disregards the proper ways of getting things. It tramples authority and submission. And if it wants something, he or her, if she wants something, she just takes it. <laughs> Basically being a slave to your belly's appetites. But Christ, he wants none of it. He wants nothing to do with that way of life that Satan presents. And at every temptation, the Lord, with meekness, he appeals to the word of his father. For the first temptation, he appeals to his instruction, schooling Satan. (laughs) For the second, he corrects Satan, his hermeneutics. An interpretation of the word. But for the last temptation. See the last temptation. Is when Christ is offered the kingdoms. And with it. A quick route out. No pain. No sacrifice. Just a quick bow. And you can take. What your father. Has promised. Then Jesus, he took Satan's apparent generosity. He took it personally. What does he say there? The Lord got righteously angry with him. And he commands Satan to vacate the area. What did he say? Be gone, Satan. That's not a, be gone, Satan. Or, can you please be gone, Satan? You shall worship the Lord, your God, and him only shall you serve. See, that's not the typical nice cultural trope of Christ that many in the world think he is. Brothers and sisters, this is a glimpse of the Lord who has hair as white as wool, eyes like a flame of fire that pierces flesh and bone, feet like burnished bronze, and his voice like the roar of many waters. That's Revelation. See, the enemy caught a sneak peek of the Lord who wants to rip him to shreds. To crush his head violently while singing imprecatory songs. Make no mistake. Make no mistake about it, church. The Lord that Satan saw in that command, he's going to win. Revelation says that Christ is clothed in a robe Dipped in blood. And he has a name by which he is called the word of God. And the armies of heaven. Arrayed in fine linen. White and pure. Were following him. On white horses. And from his mouth. Comes a sharp sword. With which to strike. Down the nations. And he will rule them. With a rod of iron. Revelation nineteen thirteen through 15. But the way he's going to do this, the way he is going to do it, must be through humiliation. The type of humiliation described in Philippians chapter 2. He must face and drink of the cup of sin on our behalf. He must carry us home by perfect, loving, obedience. See, Christ will earn victory by actively obeying every aspect of God's law, but with a lowly spirit, passively taking on the world's sins on the cross. It's easy for us to bang our chests in pride and boast when we show skill or win at anything. And if you're a fan of sports, whenever somebody wins anything, the last thing you see is humility. It's always some form of self-glory. We can't get away from it. It's just the way we are. See, but Christ, (laughs) Christ is on another level. All by himself. And we cling to his humble submission. So our king, he begins his ministry after the temptation. With a taste of the pain that is to come. See, the enemy's testing, he sets the world stage with it. It brings the reality of what the price is for creating an everlasting kingdom. For creating clean hearts and minds within its citizens. Jesus knows that this will require his life. And so the angels come and comfort him. And minister to Him at the end of Matthew chapter 4. Our Lord recovers His strength. And He begins His ministry. His quest to inherit and through His church rule over and teach all the nations according to Matthew chapter 8. And Matthew chapter 28 and the Great Commission. But Matthew Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 says, For that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord chooses His first disciples, and He goes throughout Galilee, ministering to great crowds, teaching in synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. But while He's doing these great things... There is a more pressing matter he must address. All throughout Scripture, we see great power and wonder. Yet, what is the result of all of this? It's always the same covenant breaking. That no matter how much evidence we see of God's power and authority, the unbelieving heart remains the same. That beyond the miracles, The Lord must begin to deal with the issue of the character of the church. The Lord knows that while healing the sick is a great and powerful sign. sign. He comes to establish the fruition of the people of the promise. And so he begins to unpack that in Matthew chapter five, verse one, seeing in the crowds or seeing the crowds, he went up. On the mountain. And when he sat down. His disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth. And taught them saying. Blessed. Are the poor in spirit. For theirs. Is the kingdom of heaven. Take a moment. Think through. What just happened. Here is the incarnate word. Speaking and teaching them. The same word that made the heavens and the earth in Genesis and all the living creatures in them. The same word that promises to Abraham that from him he would bless all the families of the earth. The tabernacle made flesh walking among his people. See, before speaking in loud thunders and lightnings at a distance... A God who is holy and dangerous. Now draws near, personally, feeding the principles of the kingdom in the Beatitudes. What a marvelous thing. The structure of the Beatitudes, it begins in verse 3. With the reward of the kingdom of heaven. And it ends in verse 10 with that same reward. They act like gatekeepers, so to speak. Meaning, once you've experienced these ideals, you have entered the kingdom. The rest of the Beatitudes in between them build on each other as already being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The second general thing that we see in the text in all the Beatitudes is the status. Of being blessed. The constant repetition. Denotes the approval of the Lord. More than just feeling happy. Or any other emotion. It is a status of approval from God. That transcends. Whatever circumstances you're in. A blessed relationship with the Lord. That grants you. Sinner. Access to the kingdom of heaven. All of the Beatitudes are kingdom ideals that should reign in the lives of its citizens. And what flows out of that state is blessing of life. The effect of the fall is a cursed relationship with God. Now through Christ, a blessed relationship with God. The first beatitude is the gatekeeper. That a sinner left in his sin will never understand. See, the very nature of sin is self-indulgent. Self-centered worship. It cares nothing. It cares nothing for the order that God has designed in creation. It hates everything to do with submission, with contentment. With joy under the limits and roles designed by God. Sin always, always wants it all. And it wants it now. Sin is full of itself. Yet the Lord says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is at the center of redemption. Of experiencing the grace of God a response born out of the reality that we are spiritually bankrupt without God. To be poor in spirit is to be emptied of oneself. To be poor to all that is sinful and self-indulgent in order to be filled in the things pertaining to the spirit. The things pertaining to the spirit is a relentless pursuit Of the things God cares about. How? Through constant death. To your sin. What does that look like? Death to grumbling. Death to being ungrateful. Death to being resentful. Death to being petty. Death. To being vengeful, death to being presumptuous, death to virtue signaling. All of those things are fake. They're centered around the God of the self. The Lord's use of poverty is not saying that we must all be monetarily poor, that we must now take vows of poverty to show. Just how holy we are. That would ironically contradict what Jesus is trying to get at. We know from all of scripture that the Lord blesses in abundance. That Christians are to aim at stewarding resources wisely. And doing so for leaving a legacy. In fact, I believe we need more Christian owned businesses. And Christian entrepreneurs. That lead in their fields with excellence and virtue. But it flows from being poor in spirit understanding their spiritual bankruptcy and despair outside of Christ. But it is also worth noting that many of our brothers and sisters, they do not have abundant resources. And this is also a guard for their hearts with contentment from the temptations of covetousness and ingratitude or also the presuming to to live Beyond the means that God has provided to them, enslaved to debt. They too are called to be poor in spirit. Brothers and sisters, being poor in spirit is foundational, it's a spirit caused virtue in your regeneration. Yet, this is not an unknown concept before the Lord taught it. There's a reason why there's only one liners. Because the scriptures are filled in the Old Testament up to that point. What God is trying to communicate to his people about who they are and who God is. In fact, this is a clear judgment towards the people who had the word of God, who knew this and yet chose to be puffed up in spirit. This was a clear stab at the conservative party of that day. The ones who professed belief in Sola Scriptura. In the inspired word of God. They believed in the resurrection. Brothers and sisters, this was directed at the Pharisees. The ones with right theology. That said all the right things. Looked the right way. They had the cultural prestige of being an old and known religion. As the power and wonder of the Lord was known throughout the nations. Yet they used that influence in the culture to posture a being better than the world. To keep the truth to themselves. Rather than seeking to engage and teach the nations to obey God. They scoffed at others and thought richly of themselves. They hated the law while While professing to observe and love it. See, Jesus was ruthless with the Pharisees. He never held back. You want to know what Jesus thought of the Pharisees? Luke 18, verses 10 through 14 says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself. He prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, he would not even lift up his eye to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. To contrast the Pharisee, we have so many examples in the Old Testament that we can point to. We can see the image of Isaiah approaching the holy throne. A prophet who speaks the oracles of God. The very means he brings the oracles of God are washed in coal. Fiery coal. What throne is this? And he comes undone. We can think of Job at the end of his trials, rather than being possessed by the spirit of this age to bring it to the contemporary. Brothers and sisters, Job could have easily gone woke. He could have interpreted his circumstances as being oppressed by God. He could have surrendered to envy, to covetousness and ingratitude. Because everything he had was taken away and that's not fair. Yet Job's response, in poverty of spirit, he says, God giveth, God taketh away. And at the end of his trials, Job does ask the Lord the why question. He's not possessed by resentment, but he does want to understand. And he says, teach me. I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. To which the Lord commands him. To gird up his loins like a man. And answer his questions. Because the Lord. Is revealing. To Job. You weren't there. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? What is Job's. Reaction. He comes undone. He quotes. I had heard of you. By the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's being poor in spirit. What is the foundation of an everlasting kingdom? What are the principles and ideals? That can unite us? Brothers and sisters, it all begins by understanding our spiritual bankruptcy. And this understanding is not of yourselves. It is caused by the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit has been sent by the Father and the Son because Christ won. Not only by His cross, By His resurrection and ascension at the right hand of the Father. Every other fruit of the Spirit, it begins with being poor in spirit. It's the starting point in the character of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven that sets it apart from the rest of the world. From it, our life of service to the church, our true humility... Our generosity and our hospitality, they become a consistent effort by the power of the Holy Spirit to transform the world. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning, Lord. We thank you because You have purchased for us a salvation that is grand. A salvation that cost the Lord Jesus Christ His righteous life. Lord, help us not to look to our failures, but to His success. That by the power of the Holy Spirit that indwells in the church can do great things. If we trust the Lord, if we truly believe that the Holy Spirit is with us, if we truly believe that He is God, then He is capable of doing wonderful and masterful things. And we have, as your church, as you have multiplied from 12 disciples to taking over the Roman Empire. To forming nations. To establishing this nation. Lord. Your gospel of the kingdom is great. We are not great. But your gospel. Surely is. Causing your people. A radical response in obedience Lord. And submission to Christ. To assume our roles. In the plan of redemption. In this trying season, Lord, let us not look to the culture for pointers. We look to your word. And we trust and we have faith that you will bring to fruition what you have promised. Because this is your work. This is your church. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.